0: Hello. We would like to welcome you to the South Dakota Specialty Producers Association podcast. Our host, Charles Riggins, is out today. I'm Kathleen Rickes, the local food system coordinator for South Dakota Specialty Producers Association. And our association is made up of growers, processors, chefs, consumers, resource providers and others, interested in producing, marketing, and supporting South Dakota specialty crops, meats, and products. In this podcast, we discuss production issues affecting South Dakota specialty crop producers. And we are bringing you this podcast to help get good information to you as producers about the topics that are important to our members. Our first series of podcasts will address the challenge of integrated pest management for specialty producers in our region. There will be four episodes in this series and each episode will feature different specialty crop or type of crop and effective ways to implement various forms of Integrated Pest Management. So welcome to episode two of SD, Specialty Producers Association podcast. And we are so happy to have our guest, Marissa Hsu. Marissa is a horticulture and IPM extension educator with the University of Minnesota. She has a master's degree in entomology from Michigan State University. And in her role at U of M, she works with producers, growers, and master gardeners to troubleshoot issues as well as develop educational content and programming. She has worked with vegetable growers of all sizes on a wide range of insect, disease, nutritional, weed, food safety, and regulatory issues. So Marissa is here today to talk to us about IPM for curcubits. Your cucumbers, melons, zucchini, pumpkin, squash. And she just comes to us with a wealth of knowledge. So thank you so much. Good afternoon, Marissa.
1: Uh, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for that very generous um, introduction. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you guys today. All my fam- excited family's from South Dakota, so it's always uh, fun to dabble in what we always call the ancestral homeland. So yeah, I'm excited to talk to you guys. Oh, great. Where are
0: you from? Well,
1: I'm not from South Dakota, but my mom is from Aberdeen. My dad is from
0: Pierre. I've got okay. family all over the state. Okay, and we were talking earlier, it, it is very nice to speak with someone um, from Minnesota where there's um, n- really similar uh, climate and um, similar season time, not the same, but very similar. And um, so we're just very interested in um, hearing uh more about your background too, that you help people with vegetable growing, and we're going to look forward to getting your advice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you guys. I've been working with vegetable growers primarily for five years now, first in Michigan and now in Minnesota, so I have lots of experience uh, looking at unhappy plants and trying to figure out (laughs) why they look the way they do and what we can do about it.
0: Okay, great. And what made you decide to focus on um, vegetables, in particular?
1: I just think they're really there's there's so many different kinds of vegetables. There's so many different issues you can have, and there's so many gaps in knowledge. It feels like in corn and soybeans, we know so much about them that we're down to like we need to figure out how to give like the perfect nutrition to each individual plant. And in vegetables. There's still so many big issues that we're still working on getting good information for. So it's just a really dynamic part of agriculture. And I feel like you can really really help people make a difference on farms.
0: So I always like that aspect of it. Really, there's, there's always something to discover. That's great. Well, as we approach this subject of integrated pest management, it might be a good idea, I thought, to just start with a discussion of prevention. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering if you could share with us and describe some of the steps that you advise producers can take to avoid pests with these types of crops.
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing to do is really think about your farm. Each farm is very different and what they grow, where they're growing, how they rotate. So thinking about your farm specifically and what the historic issues have been is always a good place to ground your integrated pest management. Um, It can also highlight maybe where some of your knowledge gaps are, maybe where you're seeing insects you don't recognize or something you think is a disease, but you're not quite sure. Knowing where those gaps in your understanding of what's going on in your operation, those are really important um, things to be aware of so that if that issue Comes around again this growing season, you are better equipped to management. Um, with so many insects, so many diseases, the treatment options are very species specific. So it really is important to know exactly what disease or exactly what insect you're dealing with. So knowing where your knowledge gaps are, then working, I don't know, on, on snowy days like this, it's a great time to look back at notes, do some Googling, and figure out what kind of issues you've seen on your farm in the past. Um, and then the next, From there you can start to think about timing. When should you start to expect issues? Um, when, when do you really need to start scouting intensely for powder mildew or squash bugs or whatever your big headache um, vine crop pests are? Uh, the University of Minnesota just released some nice um, cropping calendars that can help growers kind of visualize when they might start seeing some of our big insect pests. If you're curious about seeing those, they're at Z. Umn.edu/crop-calendars and maybe we can put that link in the description of this podcast. But sometimes timing, I think, for these mine crop pests is one of the most difficult things, and that gives you a good overview of when we start to see some of the biggest insect issues and how to identify each life stage.
0: Okay, so that's a, a, a interactive calendar or more that um, just gives you the dates that you're working with and are. Our-
1: And it gives you kind of, this is, you know, where we expect, you know, in our growing zone, where we'd expect the plants to be in the season, you know, in July when they're smaller, all the way to September when they're getting ready to be harvested. And it kind of lines up, you know, mid-July we'll start seeing squash bugs. This is what the eggs look like. This is what the nymphs look like. So help you to kind of line up some of that timing and then some of those pest life stages. And those can be really, really important to recognize for some of our cold crop pests. So it's kind of a good high-level things to look for and when, which could be, I think, one of the big struggles as you start to drill down into your IPM program.
0: Oh, good, with photos. Yeah.
1: They're really nice illustrations, so you can get rid of some of the background noise that you sometimes get in, um, yes. in photos. But yeah, they're illustrated and they're really nice.
0: Yes, okay, great. And um, so you can get this at uh, z. Z. umn
1: slash crop calendars.
0: Okay. And um, so would you like to then go into describing some of the decisions um, that uh, you can make that will uh, impact pests?
1: Yeah. So some of the decisions might be ones you've already made for this year, but Big ones are things like variety. So for example, if you're a grower that is always struggling uh, with powdery mildew, you know, you get those white you know, powdery mildew because it looks like powdered sugar all over your leaves. You, get, you know, you get those attacking your pumpkins and kind of causing the plants to wither before your pumpkins are ready. And you know it's a consistent issue. Choosing a resistant variety is a really good, effective way to deal with that issue. Maybe you've already selected your main Your main varieties, they don't have that resistance. It could be a good year to maybe just buy a couple plants and trial them this year to see if they work for you and what your customers are looking for in pumpkins or squash or whatever it is you're growing. Um, You can find good lists from Cornell that have, they kind of comb all the catalogs for you. So instead of sitting at your desk with like 25 catalogs trying to like narrow in on, well, what is this, what's the powdery mildew abbreviation in this catalog versus that catalog, they kind of collate all that for you. And you can see just a big list. These are what all the different companies are claiming are their powdery mildew resistant varieties. And if you just type Cornell resistant varieties, vegetables into your Google, that will come up uh, right at the top. So that's a good uh, variety selection is a really important step, especially in dealing with some of our cucurbit diseases. Um, some other decisions that might be being made this type of year might already be made really important in vine crops is rotation. We have some really, really, really gnarly soil borne diseases that once they arrive in a piece of land, they don't ever really go away and they're really hard to get rid of. So rotating preventatively to keep soil-borne diseases from um, building up in your soil is going to be really important. This can be hard to do, especially if you're someone who's growing like um, specialty pumpkins or growing pumpkins for a roadside stand where you have things really laid out. You want people to park here and they walk to the pumpkins. It can be very hard sometimes. It's like agritourism farms to work rotation in, but I really encourage people to try to prioritize it as much as possible, especially if you see uh, want your uh, farm to have longevity rotating to keep away some of the gnarly soil borne diseases we see in vine crops is going to be really, really important. And then I guess some other things you do are as you start to plant and stuff, which is be planting in a way to maximize airflow. It can be really tempting when the plants are small or when you're just planting the seeds to pack things in tight, but we all know how big and robust vine crops can get. So it's important to consider how much they vine out and how much space different varieties will need once they're fully grown. So making sure you're familiar with what the seed company is advising for spacing for that pumpkin, that squash, and then actually abiding by it. So you get that good airflow that's gonna help keep your leaves dry and help keep fungal and bacterial diseases from being able to really take off.
0: Okay, great. That uh, rotation point is very interesting too, because we do have, uh, with the Specialty Producers Association, we support um, a lot of people who are doing things like farm visits and education, agritourism. And uh, so I didn't haven't thought about that aspect of um, that really in, in the actual planning of your land and um, plotting. Uh, Have you come across anyone who has done some rotation, like they just move things around uh, each year, like for, for instance, for a pumpkin patch?
1: Yeah, I've seen growers when I was in Michigan who had good success with rotating a corn maze, pumpkins, and then um, to get people onto the farm a little bit earlier. Um, sunflower is becoming really popular for some of the farms that were equipped for agritourism to do. So you get uh, people on the farm, photographers on the farm doing free advertising for you as they're doing engagement shoots and stuff like that. So yeah, then you have something flowering, brings people on the farm maybe in August, July, depending on when you can get those sunflowers on the ground and what varieties you pick. And then you have at least three kind of agritourismy things that can be rotated. So you can still hopefully use some of your parking or your concessions infrastructure, but also have points of interest that you can rotate among.
0: Oh, that's great. Yeah, diversify the business itself as well as, as getting some good rotation in there. That's great. That's something I hadn't considered. So, um, something kind of unique. And, uh, but then, kind of getting into the nitty gritty here, I guess, uh, we would just love for you to share a little bit about how we can go about identifying and, and diagnosing. If we do come across problems, um, just the identification and diagnosing of a problem in cucurbit vegetable crops. And if, we're, if we are looking at beginning in mm-hmm. the IPM program, um, what can we look for and when? So I'm trying to think about how it is that's, that's a big, I know, that uh, is a lot yeah. of questions. But um, I guess uh, if, let's just take that last part. So if we are looking at, at beginning that IPM program, um, you're kind of sa- saying, you know, really it starts with the planning of, of where things are gonna go, where you're gonna put things, how much they uh, will be spaced out and how much room. Is it, um, do you look at or help people with, like, what should be planted next to each other as well? Um,
1: for vine crops, that isn't necessarily as big of a consideration.
0: Okay. Or some
1: other crops where maybe you have cover crops that are in the same family, and so those can yeah. act as over, but we don't really have vine crop cover crops, so... It isn't as much about their location next to other things. I mean, maybe there are some small like organic growers who are interested in intercropping and stuff like that, but there's not super solid research yet saying one way or another what the best things to plant together in that way are. Okay. But I would say for vine crops, because they do require pollination to produce the fruit, um, it is good to have resources for bees on or near your farm um, and also have like if you're a larger farm uh, a safe kind of uh, place for those bees to go when you are going to spray. So yeah good I think bee access is something to think about for vine crops that maybe we don't think about as much for some of our other crops.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay and what are some common issues in our part of the country? that we can look for?
1: Yeah, so the most, I'd say probably the biggest vine crop issues are gonna be the insect issues. We kind of have three big ones we see every year in our part of the country. Striped cucumber beetle, squash bug, and squash vine borer. They're all a little bit different in the damage they cause and in their life cycle. In my experience working with vine crop cores, I'd say cucumber beetles are probably the biggest issue. Um, They reproduce pretty quickly, their numbers can get very high, they can spread diseases and cucumbers and melons, they're really hard to get, hard to get rid of even if you're a conventional grower who can use uh, pesticides and if you're a more organic grower then they're even more frustrating to deal with. I've known growers in the past who were doing everything they needed to do to be certified organic except for they couldn't, get, they, their cucumber beetle issues were so great they were not comfortable um, stopping using conventional pesticides. That was kind of the one thing keeping them from being fully certified organic was cucumber beetle management. So they can be wow. a really, really um, tough one. But I guess the, the positive side of the cucumber are uh, the cucurbit insects, all the insects are pretty distinct and they're pretty easy to identify. So as long as you're out walking your fields uh, regularly, know, doing the IPM-based practice of scouting. So going out once a week into your fields, looking under leaves, counting insects, looking for disease, um, you'll, you'll find these bugs if they're out there. They're all pretty easy to identify. Hard to talk about insect identification over an audio medium, uh, but you have, you know, yellow striped beetles, squash bug, they look like stink bugs, just kind of like someone stretched them out a little bit. Um, squash vine bores a cause of wilted plants. So if you know what you're looking for, the the insects are easy to find, though dealing with them can kind of be another story altogether.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's nice, um, like you referred to that calendar, just when can Mm -hmm. I look for these? Because you don't want to, you know, come out when there's already a problem and so those those best practices and then um kind of knowing uh when you're looking for certain things like the um the squash bugs Mm -hmm. talking about that that maybe you're not really on the lookout for until like mid-june to early july Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah
1: And that's a pest where it's really good to catch it early if you're a small grower and you know what their eggs look like. They're very distinctive and it's very easy to just scrape the eggs off the leaves as you walk around plots and look for what's ready to harvest. And if you're maybe a larger scale grower, hand picking's not going to be the kind of thing you do. Um, oftentimes people, their instinct is to spray for this bug once they see the adults, maybe in late August or September, when their populations are already pretty out of control and it can be really hard to manage them with insecticides. So it's important to be able to identify the larvae which are smaller and gray. They don't look that much like the adults and they're, easy to, they're easier to miss than the adults. They aren't as damaging, but uh, pesticide applications are much, much more effective if you are spraying when squash bugs are small as opposed to when they're large. So. Okay. I think that highlights whether organic or conventional. It's good to be familiar with these bugs, biology, and what their different life stages are, because that's going to help you figure out kind of where in that life stage you can exploit their weaknesses and get some level of control in.
0: Okay. And then looking at diseases, I know you brought up the uh, the powdery mildew. Yeah. yeah, that'd
1: be the one I see the most often. We tend to see it somewhere maybe in mid to late July. That's one where we're kind of dependent on uh, weather patterns to bring it up here. Um, so with diseases, I think it's important to remember that it's important to catch them. Just like the bugs, it's important to catch them early. Though unlike bugs, like we can treat the bugs. We can get rid of them. With a disease, you can't cure the plant once the disease has taken hold. So it's really about Catching diseases early and then doing as much prevention as possible before things spread. Um, So, for example, for powdery mildew, it often gets pretty, usually start to see it sometime around fruit set, and then it um, continues to spread to more and more leaves. That by the time you're harvesting, plants can be completely defoliated. Sometimes you don't get pumpkins that have kind of reached their full size or they've gotten sunburned because there's no leaves. So, for powdery mildew, if I uh, sometimes get people doing like attempting to do rescue sprays uh, later in the year when the plants are already pretty infected. But if you're going to do like two sprays a year for powdery mildew, it's much better to do it when you're first starting to see it in the field and give you a little uh, few weeks of prevention before it is totally out of control because once it has spread over a lot of leaves. Applications aren't going to do very much for you.
0: Okay. So switching gears a little bit, I guess, uh, uh, to the topic of predatory insects. And and I was uh, kind of doing some research on this or, or interested in this topic that, you know, the good bugs Mm -hmm. and um, maybe looking for them to arrive or introducing them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe even figuring out like why they aren't there to begin with or what you can do to, um, attract them and encourage them. So I was wondering if you could, um, just go into a a little bit of that aspect of IPM, with the predatory insects.
1: Yeah, so we don't always have like as much of a, like a timetable or like a calendar like we have for some of our pest insects. Um, because beneficial insects, they use the entire landscape. Often pests are very specific to you know I only feed on this crop, but a lot of beneficial insects feed on all kinds of other insects or pollinate all kinds of other plants. So they're not going to be as tied to your crop as um, some of your pests are potentially. What's nice with cucurbits is um, you need bees, so you need to have some resources for bees and the same flowers, the same diversity of habitat that is good for pollinators is also gonna be good for our predatory insects. So if you're on a farm and you feel like you're not seeing very many predators or you're not seeing a lot of pollinators, adding a part of your farm doesn't need to be huge, like a strip of uh, flowers, your goal would be to have something in your landscape that is flowering at all times so that the bees never really have to leave your property to find something to eat. Same with these predators. These predators, you know, they eat aphids, they eat caterpillars, but they also like to eat pollen so that having those flowers attracts the bees you need to pollinate, but it also attracts the beneficial insects who are going to keep some of your pest insects in check. And oftentimes, I think adding some of that long-term habitat for pollinators and natural enemies is going to be a better investment of time and money uh, than uh, buying beneficials in. It can be really, really tricky to get beneficial insects uh, to do what you want them to do. I'm sure like anyone who's bought and tried to release ladybugs, you like let them go and you're like, hey, come back. You're you're flying away. I spent $40 on you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Really? uh Really That's tough. A great point is uh, getting something flowering all the time, and keeping um, different flowering crops for that uh, pollination. That's great.
1: Yeah, uh, I think Xerces Society has really nice lists, kind of for each region of these are pollinator. Like this is kind of all the really plants that are really good for beneficial insects and helps you figure out like if I want something blooming all the time, here are going to be some of the plants I want to consider adding.
0: Okay, okay. Well, getting back to that striped cucumber beetle, I just wondered if you could give us, um, you know, maybe just a few pointers on in some of the things that have really worked best for approaches to this pest.
1: Yeah, so like I said, this is a, t- a tough one. Like I. This is what I get asked about by growers all the time, and like I wish I had that like magic bullet. So I think part of it is part of it's being realistic about like they will always probably be around, and it's like wonderful as it sounds like have a year where you never see a cucumber beetle. That is, <laughs> it's not going to happen. So I think starting like from realistic place when you're trying to manage cucumber beetle is important. Um, As for what you can do to management, I think part part of it is knowing when it's most important to manage them. So they come out pretty early in the year. Oftentimes they're starting to emerge right as we're planting or right as we're placing transplants. So it's important to know that this is when the plants are gonna be most vulnerable to cucumber beetle damage. They can defoliate those tiny plants. And if you're a cucumber or a melon, Cucumber beetle also vectors a bacterial disease that will cause the plant to wilt as it grows. So it's important to kind of get a handle on them early so that you don't kind of lose the plant before the season has even started. Um, if you're an organic grower, some things to think about would be something to exclude the cucumber beetles. So hopefully you're rotating, so you're not, you're not gonna be emerging under your floating, your floating row cover or um, some kind of low tunnel but excluding them completely in some way is a good way to manage them, especially earlier in the season. Though you can't, unfortunately can't rely on exclusion exclusively because again, those plants are gonna flower. So when you provide access to the bees, you're also gonna give some access to cucumber beetles, but it is still worth it to have some of that row cover protection early in the season. Um, another thing that organic growers have good luck with oftentimes is trap, trap? crops. So things you're not trying to grow to harvest, things you're growing so that all the cucumber beetles are hanging out over there and that thing you're not going to harvest. So it's okay that they're uh, feeding and you can sometimes growers, especially like conventional ones, will just spray the trap crop with insecticides to wipe out all the cucumber beetles that have gathered there. Um, Blue Hubbard squash would be the variety I most often seen offered as like the sacrificial cucurbit that lets the rest of the Crops survive cucumber beetle. Really? Why is that? Just for whatever reason, uh, when people have uh, you know put out a bunch of different varieties of squash to see what kind the cucumber beetles like the most, blue Hubbard is the one they favor. So
0: those the very big, they're a really large.
1: Mm-hmm. Must have must have delicious delicious leaves, I guess.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well. I think you've given us a lot of information especially for like this this early season kind of time. It's the middle of March now and um people are starting to plan their plots and um things like that and they can sounds like take this time to really get familiar with um what they're looking for and maybe even create some kind of plan to start taking notes and mm-hmm. um, being organized about their scouting and things that that um, really is, I, I, I think an underrated part of, you know, we can talk about the uh, predatory insects and buying all these things and sprays and all these things, but um, the habits of IPM seem to be, um, the really important thing is being in those habits.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of the, building those habits is one of the hardest things to do. It doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, there's always so you're always being pulled so many directions on the farm. There's always always Mm -hmm. so many other things you could be doing, but I do think regularly practicing IPM does pay off, so it might not seem like, you know, taking a half hour in the morning to walk the field is going to pay off, but more likely than that, like at least a few times a year, you're gonna catch something early that would definitely cost you money later. So I think it's a good investment in time to get familiar with what's going on in your farm.
0: Great, that's a great point. And uh, I think that wraps it up for our episode. I thank you so much, Marissa, for your time and uh, for being here with us. And we really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was good, good chat. I, I I hope everyone out there has a good growing season.
0: Yes, me too. We're excited for it here. (laughs) We're ready for, to be done with snow and just get to, planting and and get to the season so if we have any more questions we'll have to be in touch and we would love to have you back sometime too maybe in the future or uh, for a webinar or something our um, specialty producers podcast will be recording um, several more sessions here We do a lot of educational and informational content for producers. And so thank you, Marissa, for being a part of that. And we will uh, be talking to you again soon.
1: Yeah, thank you.